0: Christ is greater. Christ is greater. week one, we saw as the Son of God and His divinity, He's greater than the most magnificent experience or thing we've ever seen. For the people who received this letter, it was manifestations of angels. We can submit anything that we want in this that it has our interest. Christ is greater. Week two, we saw that in His humanity, He was greater than the devil. And everything that the de- devil carries, death and fear and all the things wrapped in it. And today we explore Jesus as the great high priest. But not a high priest who's separated from us, but one who can sympathize with our greatest struggle. Now to get at this message, we have to remember immediately who this letter was sent to. It was sent to the diaspora Hebrews. People who had begun in the Hebrew faith, but had a revelation that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for, and the new terminology was that Christ is Lord. In that lordship, it changed everything about their lives. As diaspora, they were immigrants, and so they lived with very few rights. There was a pecking order in the system of the day. There were the Romans, and there were the Greeks, and there were the foreigners. And beyond that, they were Jewish There was a pecking order in the foreigners, and the Jews were far down on the line. And then, worst of all, they named their allegiance to this one called Jesus. You see, when they set out in their faith, they took up their cross and denied themselves and followed Christ. They thought a better life was coming for them, but they were severely persecuted for this. And as when persecution comes and when trouble comes to our life, we can begin to second guess. I'm sure they were asking at different times, and the reason I believe this is because I see the writer of Hebrews cheering them on, they're thinking, is this really worth it? Should we turn back on the things that we've said? Why have we brought this trouble upon us? And I hear in the writer of Hebrews a cheerleader, twelve times in the letter he says, let us He builds these aspects of how greater Christ is and the greater work of Christ. And because of that, there's implications. You see, knowledge of Jesus is not just theological knowledge that you tuck in your head. It's knowledge that you appropriate that changes everything about your life. And he wants them to know now that they have one who understands what they've been through. They have a great high priest And in their difficult situation, when they're feeling temptation to turn and they're feeling vulnerability on every side and misunderstood, the writer wants them to see that they are not forgotten by God. He sees and he truly understands and sympathizes with them. Now, this message will land to you today on the basis of how much trouble and sense of being unheard you have in your life. Bottom line is, if it's going really well for you, tuck this one in your pocket for some time down the road. But if your world is turned upside down in any way and you're feeling trouble, this is a word for you this morning. So let's go to the text and see how the writer depicts it. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So we've got to get into this idea of a priest, this high priest. What's going on here? There was a triad of three leaders in um, Jewish history that helped people experience the presence of God. It's a hierarchical culture. Hierarchy likes to experience God through others. A gallantarian culture likes to experience God on our own. Bless the Lord for the priesthood of all believers because that makes us feel comfortable as Americans. Other cultures don't like the priesthood of believers as much. They like to have somebody that helps get them to God. And in that culture, the way, that's the way it was. Prophet, priest, and king. The prophet was the one who spoke for God to the people. The prophet brought correction. The prophet bought God's word to get them back online. The priest spoke to God on behalf of the people. The priest interceded before God. The priest brought offerings in the sacrificial system. And the king ruled in the place of God. If you read the Psalms, they make a lot more sense when there's blessing being prayed on the King David, it's the blessing is that he will live out as the King in heaven so that they would experience the rule of God. And all three of these were important, but the focus here is on the priest. A high priest, it's someone who is advanced in the structure. Now, the priest had three main functions. One was to offer sacrifice all the time, but the high priest once a year would go in behind to the holy of Holies to offer on the Day of atonement an offering for the sin of all of the people. Now this is debated, but some theorists have said that there was a time in Israel's history that the priests are so evil that they would tie a rope around the high priest's leg because going before the holiness of God you would be stricken dead if you brought sin with you and even though they were offering sacrifice for their sin there were priests dropping dead inside the holy of holies nobody else could go in there so you just had to drag him out now it's an interesting piece of history i don't know if it's true or not but it's just fascinating but then when the priest would come out he'd put his hands up in the sign of the hebrew letter to pronounce blessing over the people the priest was important Well, Jesus is the fulfillment of that triad, true prophet, priest, and king. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand he's the great high priest because there's implications for the people's lives. You see, this high priest is not one who can, uh, though when he comes from a divine stake, doesn't understand where they're coming from. Listen to the language. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Here's his divinity. The people might think, well, as God, he doesn't know what we're going through. You don't know what it's like down here representing you, God. It's a lot tougher than sitting up there on your throne. This is Jesus, the Son of God, the one who passed through the heavenlies. There's a subtle uh, image here to the high priest who passed through the veil. There's a lot happening in the people's minds. But then it goes on to say this. Um, for he, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, the writer of Hebrews moves from the God-man aspect of his divinity to his humanity. Jesus experienced temptation in the same way that you and I did. Now, um, I'm glad you're here at the 1045. If there's any people from 9 o'clock watching this now... This is actually the better message because I figured it out between services while I was sitting here reading. Back in chapter 2, we were already introduced to the high priest. I completely missed this in my study this week. And it says this, just listen to it. Therefore, he had to become, be made like his brothers in every respect. He became human like us so that we might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. See, when I think about Jesus being tempted every way like I am, I immediately go to my most common sins, which are sins of carnality. The fleshly sins. The ones that are with us. Well, that's what's being referenced in chapter 2. Something bigger is happening in chapter 4. I think the people, by the context, I don't know why I didn't see it this week. God wanted me to wait, wait for to see it at this moment. The, the temptation for them was to deny that God was actually doing something in their life because of the circumstances that they were facing. The temptation was to turn from their faith. Are you following me on this? This is different than my carnal temptation that I feel all week long. This is the temptation to abandon. It's for the people to say, maybe we were wrong. Our circumstances suggest maybe that Jesus isn't as great as we had thought. And now the writer of Hebrews is saying, not only does he see, but he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he's been tempted as we are. Now what makes me think about this aspect of turning? Go now to verses 7 to 9. Uh, by the way, those of you who wanted me to deal with the priest from the Kelsic line, I'm not touching that one. So you can come back at another time for that. We'll be here till like 3 o'clock. So I just want to get to this. This is the important part for us. In verse 7 of chapter 5, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Do you see how the writer of Hebrews is connecting this to the most crisis moment in Jesus' life? You've been reading the Bible long enough to know this is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is when Jesus is questioning the Father, is this really the way you're going to do it? Mark tells us in his commentary of Jesus going into the Garden that Jesus began to become greatly distressed and troubled. Remember Mark is writing what Peter's telling him from the account. Peter's remembering what was on Jesus. Remember Jesus is the one who walked with this incredible power, the presence of the kingdom of God. And Mark's looking on him and or Peter's looking on him and he sees him troubled and distressed. Jesus himself says to them, "My soul is very sorrowful even unto the point of death." Luke tells us in his account that Jesus sweat what seemed like blood, uh, drops of blood. Physiologically, it could happen, but he's using it in a metaphor aspect to express here. And you know what Jesus' declaration is: "Lord, if only this cup could pass from me." But in the end, your will be done. I don't know if this is true, but I've wondered since I've been on trips with Brian Woodman. Some of you have been on those trips. You've been in the Garden of Gethsemane. You've seen the wine press place. You've seen some of those trees that are there reminding us. That is across the valley from Jerusalem. The question that comes to us is Jesus has already begun celebrating the Passover with his disciples. What is he doing over there? The law system of the day said once you begin uh, celebrating the Passover, you need to stay in Jerusalem to the end of the Passover. You need to stay there until the high priest waves the barley sheaves at the end of the festival. That was your sign to leave Jerusalem. Actually, it was considered sin to leave Jerusalem. What's Jesus doing over there? I think he's having a crisis. For those of you who've been there, you know you can go up over that hill to Bethany and then he can disappear into Jericho and up back into Galilee where none of the Judeans would be able to touch him. See, we don't like this humanity of Jesus, but reality, this humanity of Jesus helps helps him sympathize with us. Jesus is there wrestling with his Father. He's wrestling, I don't like this cup that you've given me, God. Is it worth it? But in the end... Most powerful prayer, your will be done. And he gets the victory through being made perfect in his suffering. Later, the writer of Hebrews will tell us for the joy set before him. So, what's my so what this morning? Jesus knows. Jesus sees. Jesus understands, and he sympathizes with you in your pain. Though he's the eternal God who comes in incarnational form and goes back and is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and all powers and authorities and dominions are underneath his feet, he does not sit aloof on his throne but he looks down and he knows about all of our pain. See, sometimes it's not about having our pain relieved, but it's about having someone understand. Yes, we want our pain relieved. We want our situation resolved, but just knowing that our Creator knows and our Creator has experienced can give us the courage to keep going on. You see, for the cheerleader, the writer of Hebrews, it's not so much about the so what, but it's about the now what's. Because knowing this about Jesus only has value when we appropriate it. So here what the writer of Hebrews says to us, he says this, let us hold fast our confession. What's he saying here? We use confession in our worship service, but I don't think it's that intent. We use the Apostles' Creed, which is the different things that we believe that are part of our confession. We confess before we go to the Lord's table, agreeing with God that we need Him in this relationship. The confession that he's referring to would have been the confession of the people of God in the day. Jesus is Lord. If Jesus was Lord, that meant they were not Lords. If Jesus was Lord, it meant the Hebrew system was not Lord. If Jesus was Lord, it meant that Caesar was not Lord. And when you name Jesus as Lord, it meant every other Lord had to come crashing down. Like the god Dogon who is put next to the ark of the temple in the Old Testament, it will come falling down. Jesus said you can't serve two masters, you can only have one Lord. Jesus said seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. If we seek all these other things first, we'll never get the kingdom. Let's replace the word for a moment. Seek first the king, and all of these other things will be added unto you. If we seek all these other things, we will never know the king. The true blessings, the joy, and the mystery of the book of, of the letter to the Hebrews will only partially come to us if we do not make Jesus Lord. Praise the Lord that Jesus is Savior, but even better, praise the Lord when he becomes Lord. Huh. There it is. So let me ask you Is Jesus Lord? Okay, let me just remind you if Jesus is Lord, there can't be other Lords. He does not share his throne with others. If Jesus is Lord, I can't be Lord, I can't be in control. If Jesus is Lord, my household cannot be Lord. Let me just help your imagination think about that because I think there is an idol we've created in our day. If Jesus is Lord, my kid's education can't be Lord. If Jesus is Lord, my kid's place in social structure cannot be Lord. If Jesus is Lord, my kid's comfort level cannot be Lord. We've done a terrible thing to our kids in this day. We've made them into little idols and we serve them. And what a burden we've put upon them. But who's up to being a God that we would bow down to them? Please, don't make them the center of the universe. Because if they're the center of your your universe, they're never going to get Jesus as Lord for themselves. It means my work cannot be Lord. I'm talking about work and where I make my income. My money cannot be Lord. My retirement and my plan for retirement can't be Lord. My house cannot be Lord. My exercise cannot be Lord. My church cannot be Lord. My reputation cannot be Lord. My health cannot be Lord my appearance cannot be Lord and certainly my comfort cannot be Lord I name all those things with a little bit of fear and trepidation because I've made all of those idols at different times in my life See, the second let us will never happen until the first let us becomes the true reality in our life because we'll never know the shalom of Jesus until Jesus becomes Lord. We won't. We will second-guess Him all over the place. The writer goes on and says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of trouble. The throne of grace. Isn't that beautiful? I love when we sing lamb songs of Jesus because I imagine the throne of majesty. I see pomp and circumstance. I see firecracker shows. I see angels singing. I love that aspect. But what's the throne that he tells us to go confidently to? It's the throne of grace. See, Jesus can offer that to us because of what he suffered and went through. And he says you will receive two things. You'll receive mercy and grace. Mercy is what you get when you've screwed the whole thing up. It's when you made the wrong things idols. And grace, which is what you get, is unmerited favor to have victory as you make the right things the things that you pursue in life. It's a pretty good offer. Let us have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. So this morning, I don't know where you feel most vulnerable or most misunderstood or most tempted or most overlooked. I want you to know that Jesus knows about that space. Yesterday, I was trying to think if there's ever been a time when I felt like God didn't see me. You know, to be honest with you, I apologetically say, I don't know if I've ever remembered a time like that. I've been disappointed with God. He and I have had some interesting conversations. He hasn't learned to do things the way I like them done all the time. (laughs) But I have never really gotten to that point where I didn't feel at least seen. Maybe that's the gift of growing up in a covenant family, I don't know. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, who are the people in history who've been the most unseen? And I began singing a Negro spiritual. It's the weirdest experience. I kept thinking about these songs where people, there's such soul in them because they sang them as an expression that in their silence and quietness and pain, This Jesus they had met on their unfortunate journey because they didn't know him, most of them, when they left Africa, had become real to them and they would sing songs about him knowing. Pretty powerful prayers. That's why there's such soul in the spiritual Negroes. I hope we'll never lose that genre. But it made me start thinking about a potential slave. So I went to West Africa in my mind and I thought about a 10 or 11-year-old girl. In the middle of the night, another tribe comes in and grabs her and puts her in shackles with other people and begins leading her out of the village and out of her own region. And I didn't want to keep it out there, so I gave her the name Umu or Hawa. And the reason I did that is because Ingrid's called Umu and Molly and Linnea's called Hawa. I didn't want it to just be a distant image. I wanted it to feel. And as she first started marching, she would have maybe cried out for help. Her captors might not have known her language, maybe a few words. But I thought of the Bambada word, which is kumabo, which literally means in translated lift off the head. It would have been lifting off of the shackles. That's the word for redemption in our Bible. Lifting off that slavery. Maybe through one village she would have whispered it or cried it out, Kumabo. Maybe somebody in that village would hear and come try to rescue her. Then she would be put into a castle alongside the water completely from her people. Who knows what she knew? She probably worked the fields. How did she know about the slave trade? She didn't know what was coming. She'd have been poked and prodded and treated terribly. Shackled on that boat, you spent your whole life on land and now you're on a boat that's being tossed all over the place at the bottom of the boat where disease is everywhere. Maybe the ones who experienced the most grace died before they ever got out of that space. Or maybe she was shackled to two or three other people that had died in the process and the slave owners thought, well, it's not really good to keep her. She'll kill the rest of the cargo. So they would have thrown the people tied together into the water. Think about the horrors. And then you get to America, the land of freedom, and you stand on a slave block. And people come up and grab your lips and pull on your ears and nose, and they check you and they grab you because they want to find out if you're a good cargo or not. Think of the shame. Then you get bought and you're sent to a plantation where you do get clothes and food, but that Master of the slaves visits you regularly. Think of the horror. Does my family even know I'm alive? Is there a God in heaven who knows? How can my circumstances suggest that there's a God? But out of that suffering came these songs. Songs of praise that always had this one phrase in them, but Jesus. So, I don't know this morning where you feel misunderstood or tempted to turn. Or feel that life is going the wrong way. Put yourself in a space and listen to this song and please hear the words, but Jesus.